Welcome here. Uh, along with Amy, I want to welcome you if you're new here with us. Uh, my name's Matt, pastor here of the church, and this middle portion of our gathering time, uh, we always spend looking into the Word of God to see what He has for us. So we're going to do that now. Um, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we're going to see uh, our text and our topic for, for this morning. So join with me. Uh, Lord God, we thank you uh, for an opportunity again to gather together. Uh, we thank you, God, that uh, this is uh, a place and we are a people that are free, uh, Lord, to be able to, to worship you, to learn from you. Uh, I pray, God, this would be a really fruitful time. I pray, Lord, especially in light of the text this morning that is going to push us in many ways. God, I pray that we would uh, come with uh, humble hearts, uh, willing and ready to hear from you. And I pray, God, you'd help me, Lord, to speak truthfully and clearly in spite of my sin. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text for this morning is 1 Timothy 2, verse uh, 11 to 15. And just as a way to uh, kind of begin thinking about this text, uh, I want to tell you about my anniversary this year. Uh, our anniversary is September 16th for Don and I, and we, for our anniversary, went to see Bart on the Beach. Uh, this is, you know, Shakespeare in the Park down at Vanier Park. And the one we went to see this year was Taming of the Shrew. It was set in the Wild West. I think we have, there's their promotional uh, photo. Now, if you don't know Taming of the Shrew, it's a really interesting play uh, because basically it's about a woman, a very wild, rebellious woman named Catherine. She's the shrew. And her husband, Petruchio, uh, who is the one who tames the shrew. And so it's this story of this woman who is almost like a wild horse, honestly, tamed. She is deprived of comfort. She marries him and then he takes her off into the wilderness deprives her of sleep and food and to the point that she kind of breaks and, and she decides to follow him and, and to allow him to be her, her husband and lead her. And at the end, she goes back to the town and then she speaks to all of the women who are there. And this is from part of her monologue, kind of the, Catherine's ending monologue. She says this to the, to the ladies. She says, ladies, thy husband is thy Lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee. I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace or seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. Now just picture 500 Vancouverites sitting and hearing this, going out to the theater and having this play. It's a, it's a difficult play because of the way it portrays women. Now the way that the... Um, the director deals with this, and many, most of the modern sort of versions, is that they find ways to undermine or kind of soften what it says about women in the play. So in our version, the men were mostly played to be kind of buffoons and fools, whereas Catherine was sort of sophisticated and smart. And at the end of the play, after this, this kind of a speech, what she does is uh, she takes out a shotgun, right? It's a Wild West. And she shoots up the town. She kind of bang, 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 just hammers the town with bullets and then kind of walks off into the sunset with her husband, giving the distinct impression that it was her choice to be tamed and not him. And not, I don't think anyone these days would quibble, would criticize that kind of a view of taming of the shrew. Because even though everyone reveres Shakespeare, even though we love the language, we recognize that, look, there are some things that just need to be updated, right? Some things that just need to be revised to be accepted and enjoyed in our day. And you know that there are certain people in certain parts of the Bible that would say, look, it's the, it's the very same thing here, that the Bible needs to be revised. The Bible needs to be updated. And our text this morning is one of those areas that many people seek to try to uh, make new or 
make more palatable for our modern uh, mindset. So let's take a look at our verse, our verses, and uh, in case you aren't yet aware, you'll see what I mean. Uh, here's God's word to us this morning, beginning in verse 11. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Let a woman learn quietly, with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So that's our text this morning. And you can see why there might be some question about things. You, you can see why many people would see that, look, this, this is an old, regressive text that needs to be updated. For us to truly accept this, we need to either... Uh, ignore it completely, this, this part of the Bible, or find a way to say that it means what it doesn't seem to be saying that it, that it means. The question of how to read these verses has been raging in the evangelical church for about the past 60 years. And there are a lot of nuanced positions, kind of where people land, but there are two, two main positions. The first is the egalitarian position, which basically states that men and women are equal and there are no separate or distinct roles for them in the church or the home. Uh, the second uh, main position is the complementarian position, which says that men and women are equal, and there are, in fact, distinct roles given to each within the home and within the church. The second position is, is where I land personally and where we land as a church, the complementarian position. It could be stated fairly clearly uh, this way. The Bible teaches that qualified men are to be the primary teachers and leaders in, in the church. Now, I give you that on the front end, uh, partly because I don't want you guessing, kind of wondering where, where do we land, uh, but I, uh, what I'm hoping is that you don't get the idea that we as a church have chosen this position and then found a way to read the Bible to, to land there. That's not the way you should read the Bible, not the way anyone should read the Bible. The proper way to read the Bible is to, as much as possible, strip away any of your personal and cultural assumptions and to let the text speak for itself. And so that's going to be our goal this morning. My goal is, is that you walk away wrestling with the text of Scripture uh, itself. So a few things before we get going. Number one, uh, I'm, I only have so much time. I'm only going to be able to do so much. And I should warn you, I'm going to take more time than normal because there's a lot of questions about this passage. I want to make sure we're really clear. But there will be questions by the end of it. By the end, you're still probably going to have questions. That, that's fine. That's great. That makes sense. So to answer some of those questions, there's a few other ways we want to resource you. Uh, number one, I'd encourage you to uh, go to community group this week. Or if you're not part of a group, go to community group. That's where we can ask and answer all these kinds of questions. Uh, number two, we have sort of a handout. We always have community group questions each week. But this one, there is a kind of brief uh, introduction to gender roles that goes with it. So whether you're in a group or not, you can grab one of these. Uh, it has all the points from the sermon and kind of additional material. You can pick that up on the table as you exit. And also we have the book that uh, Amy mentioned by Kathy Keller, just a great concise summary of the complementarian view. And finally, on Friday, we have our next gospel marriage series, and that is going to be on gender roles. We've done that on purpose so that today you're going to hear about gender roles in the church. If you have more questions, wonder how that works in the home, you're very welcome to come, even if you're not signed up for the course, even if you're not married. If you just want to come and find out more biblical teaching to get a full picture of this, please come on Friday. We'll have time of question and answer, and hope it'll be helpful. The second thing is, 
I just really ask that we as a church could uh, enter into this topic very graciously, but also very seriously. I say graciously because this is one of those issues that we can, we can feel very personally about it, and we can engage in dialogue in a way that's not very kind. I'd ask us to be kind and gracious with each other and recognize that the issue of gender roles is not the primary teaching of the church. Okay, the primary teaching of the church is Jesus, him crucified for our sins, raised to new life, that that's what we have on our wall, that we want people to know Jesus. If you're new here with us this morning, please know we're going to dig into this seriously because it's a serious issue, but this is not our primary message. God's primary message to the world is that we can find hope and faith in Christ. However, he does give us specific instructions about gender roles. And it's important for us to know that because every local church has to decide where we land so that we can be consistent and organize ourselves uh, with integrity. So, it's serious because of that. It's also serious because, really, this is going to impact how you read the Bible. I'm hoping that you're going to see that as we go through the text of Scripture, how you read the Word is, is going to end up leading you in two different directions. So we want to take it seriously, but as we talk, let's be kind, uh, let's be gracious. Okay, here's how we're going to work through it. Five questions. We're going to ask and answer five questions, kind of paralleling the verses, then uh, I'm going to give you three typical objections to where we land. Then one uh, final challenge. And then we're going to break uh, for dinner. So it's going to be good, okay? Uh, question number one. What is the historical background here? We always want to ask that. For any given text, what is the historical background? If you've been with us at all, you know that in the Ephesian church, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of false teachers. But what some on the egalitarian uh, side want to say is that, look, uh, in Ephesus at the time, the city of Ephesus, it was really a hotbed of feminism. That there were a lot of aggressive, domineering women in the culture at the time. And so when Paul is writing, really he's writing here, is, he's writing a specific instruction to the specific church in Ephesus. It's not for everyone, it's just for that church because of the culture. We saw some of this already uh, through 1 Timothy. Right? Last week in verse 9, we saw that there was a universal teaching about modesty, right? which is for all the churches, for all time. But then there was a culturally specific instruction to the women at Ephesus, not to braid their hair, not to have gold and pearls, because that was an issue for them. And what the egalitarian point of view would like to say is, look, this whole next section, 11 to 15, comes under the culturally specific instruction. That's not a fair reading of the text. For a couple of reasons. Number one, we're going to see is Paul roots this in, in Genesis. So that's a big textual reason. But historically speaking, if you look at the town of Ephesus, it, is, it was not a hotbed of feminism. It was a pretty normal town. In fact, there's a scholar, S.M. Ba, who uh, did a lot of research, a lot of analysis. And here's what he says. He says, like other Greco-Roman city-states, its society, so this is Ephesus, was generally patriarchal. Even though some girls and women from wealthy and influential families appear in certain places of honor and patronage, both at Ephesus and other places in Asia Minor, Paul's injunctions throughout 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 then are not temporary measures in a unique social setting. So he's basically saying there, look, this isn't just about Ephesus. We know that there were problems in the church in Ephesus. There was conflict among the men. We see that in verse 8. There was distractions from some of the women wearing certain things. And then clearly there was some disruption from some of the ladies in the church. But this is not an instruction specifically to them. This is for all church, for all time. And just to be clear, this is about the church. This is not 
God saying or Paul saying anything about gender roles in the marketplace, in politics. It's not talking about whether women should be CEOs or prime ministers. That's not the purview of this discussion. He's speaking about the gathered church and gender roles uh, within it. Okay, second question, getting to the text itself. What does it mean when Paul says that a woman should learn quietly with all submissiveness? That's in verse 11. There are some who want to make a big deal of the fact that Paul is here saying that women should learn, and that is obviously true, uh, but he's not just speaking about the fact that women should learn. That was a novel idea back in those days. Uh, not many rabbis, Jesus is one of the rabbis, who said, women come and, and hear from me and I'm going to um, teach you, I want you to learn. But really his focus is not just on the learning, it's on how they are to learn. And so how they are to learn is very clear. Quietly and with all submissiveness. Quiet uh, sometimes is translated silent. That's really not the best translation. Uh, really it means peaceable or not argumentative. You see this earlier on in uh, chapter 2 where Paul says that we should pray for all our leaders so we can live a quiet life. He's not saying that we should live a silent life. He's saying that we should live a dignified, honorable life of integrity. That's the demeanor that he is advocating for women in the church and also to be submissive. That word, as you would expect, just means to yield to authority. So because the context here is teaching and the church gathering, really what we're seeing, what Paul is saying, is that women are to hear the authoritative teaching of the word when the church is gathered with a certain demeanor, with a receptive, soft heart ready to learn, which which is not surprising. I mean, that's how you think everyone would learn, but clearly there were some women in the Ephesian church that were being disruptive. And so Paul here is saying, look, ladies, that's not the way. You shouldn't call out, shouldn't be uh, talking perhaps during the, the, the preaching or whatever it may be. There is, a, there is a right demeanor that you should have. And if Paul stopped there, we probably could make a case for saying, look, well, then he is just speaking to the Ephesians. He's just speaking to some issue there in the church, but he doesn't just talk about the right demeanor for women in the church, he also speaks about the right role, the proper role, and that's the next verse. So verse 12 is really the core of this teaching, and so we need to ask the question, what does Paul mean when he says that uh, women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man? We see that very clearly. He says, I do not permit. Uh, one note, uh, when he says, I do not permit, it's not just him saying, this is my opinion. Sometimes people think, well, this is just Paul. He just Paul talking about what Paul thinks. That's, remember, Paul is an apostle. He makes really clear he speaks with the authority of God. So this is a phrase he uses sometimes in his teaching, but, but it carries with it, all of this teaching, the authority of God. So let's ask the question this way. What exactly does Paul prohibit for women? Right? Clearly there's something he's saying that women should not do within the church. What is it that he's saying? We're going to go through some options. Okay, to say yes or no. Is he saying... Uh, that what's prohibited for women is all speaking in the church. That when you come together as a church, women should not say anything. And the answer to that is no. We know that because we see examples of women speaking in the church uh, in, in the early church, in the book of Acts. Uh, it says there, God says my daughters will prophesy. And that's because there were women who were gifted with the gift of prophecy and they were encouraged to do that. Uh, there were women praying in the church, speaking in tongues in the church, prophesying, and that's encouraged within the right context, in an orderly way. So it's not, again, it's not saying silent. It's not saying women be silent. Uh, what about all teaching? Is that what's being prohibited? All teaching? Again, the answer is no, because of what it says in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So there we see that to the church, Paul says, look, for all of you, men and women, you should be teaching each other, admonishing each other. Probably it's the more mature in faith that are instructing those who are weaker in faith. That's the right way it should be. It's, it's not gender specific. And in fact, we get an example of this in our next, our next possibility. So could it be that Paul is prohibiting women from teaching men just across the board? This is sometimes how this is interpreted, okay? Uh, women in the church, you can teach, but you can't teach men. Uh, the answer here is again, no, that's not what he's saying. And we know this because we see examples of women uh, teaching men. Acts 18, 24 and 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So there you have Apollos. He's a, a powerful teacher of the word, but he misunderstands baptism. So what happens? Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, they come and they teach him. She instructs Apollos of something he doesn't understand. This is good and fitting. This is right in the church. That those women who have greater biblical understanding should, in certain contexts, teach men the things that they need to know. So, What's being prohibited? We're not talking, not all speaking, not all teaching, not all teaching of men. In fact, what Paul is talking about is one specific kind of teaching. And so let's ask the question, is he prohibiting women from the authoritative teaching of God's word in the context of public worship, preaching? Yes. Yes, I would say that's the, the right understanding of this prohibition. That he's saying that there's a particular kind of teaching that's preaching when the church is gathered for us on a Sunday morning, and, and that is the purview of men. And let's, let's find out why. Um, some point to the fact that here, Paul is, is connecting teaching with, with authority, to have authority over a man, and saying that's authoritative teaching, that's what preaching is, and so he's saying, look, women shouldn't preach. There's some value to that. But really, I think to understand what Paul means when he says teaching, we just need to see how he uses the word throughout the, the pastoral letters. So here's a few different ways Paul uses teaching. Paul considers the teaching that he does as authoritative. Right? 1 Timothy 2.7. He says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul's saying, When I come, when I speak, I'm teaching with authority. That's the kind of teaching I'm doing. But he doesn't say it's just for him. He also says that Timothy should teach in this way. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11 to 13, he says to Timothy, command and teach these things. What things? The, the teaching that Paul has given him, the doctrine. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So Paul's saying, Timothy, you should go and teach the church in the same way that I do. But more than that, Timothy, you are also to entrust other men Faithful men in the church to do that same teaching. This is 2 Timothy 2, 2. You then, my child, he's speaking to Timothy again, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see the progression. Paul teaches, he tells Timothy to teach in the same way and that which has been entrusted to them, the doctrine of the church, then appoint men in the church who could preach that. Remind the church of the true doctrine. 
Really what's being spoken about here is the office of an elder or, or pastor. Those two things go together. And what Paul is saying is that there is one role and one kind of teaching that is, that is to be men only. It's the role of elder. And we see this because when he talks about elders, which he's going to do next week, chapter 3, there are two key things that differentiate the elder from the other parts of the church. One is that it's male only. And the second is that teaching is a key component. Here's a preview of next week, uh, verse 2 in chapter 3. He says, Therefore, an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, that's the maleness, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, what, what he's talking about there is the authoritative teaching of God's word in the context of public worship. He's talking about preaching. He's saying that there is one role, elder, and one main function that elders have to preach to the church that is clearly reserved for men. So, what does this mean for us as a church, Tri-City Church? A couple of things. Uh, I've mentioned before that we are seeking to affirm elders uh, before the summer of next year, and those elders will then be chosen from qualified men uh, within the church uh, because of what we see here in Scripture, because we're taking this uh, at its word. Um, only qualified men then, uh, elders, potential elders, some guest speakers will, will be preaching on a Sunday morning. Now, this doesn't mean that just any guy can come up and preach. Guys, there's some of you, you, you know you should not be up here speaking, right? We all know that, okay? That's, that's not just an open door for any guy. That's not saying gender is the key thing. It's qualified men. There's, next week, we're going to see a whole extensive qualifications for eldership. What this does mean is that every other role in the church is open to women and to men. In fact, more than open, we encourage, I, I encourage, our hope is that every other role in the church will be filled by those women who are qualified for that task. And I'm happy that at uh, Tri-City Church, women fill pretty much all of those other roles, community group leaders, Bible study leaders, ministry directors, worship leaders, youth and kids teaching, all of those are filled by women who have gifts of teaching or leadership, and that's great. That's the way the church should function. So that is the main prohibition, the main thing that Paul is saying here, and I'm hoping you see where this is leading. Now, the next question that we should ask is, what do Adam and Eve have to do with any of this? Right? Like, why, why does Paul talk about Adam and Eve? Well, the answer is that Paul talks about Adam and Eve because he is answering the big why question. Remember, the why question is, is Paul, what, like, why are you teaching this? In fact, many scholars, many authors have been baffled by this teaching of Paul and wondered, man, what, Paul, why would you say this? Because we, we, we know that you can't mean it. So what is it that you're really saying here? What's, and they try to postulate and speculate and very often ignore the fact that Paul hasn't left us in the dark. He has given us a big signpost with a big because on it. I'm, I'm not permitting women to do these things because the little word that he gives us there, the signpost, is the word for. For means because. So here's my teaching on gender roles in the church. Why? Because, and then he takes us back to Genesis. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And what Paul does there is take all of this teaching out of the specific cultural context of Ephesus and places it back at the beginning of humanity. Back before there was culture. Back in terms of the way that God designed us in the very beginning. 
And what he shows us there is something you might have missed in the creation story, that gender roles play a huge part in understanding ourselves as human beings and our fall into sin. So let's look at this briefly. What we see from the very beginning, verse 13, right? We see there he said that God made Adam first and then formed Eve. The, the structure that's set out is, is Adam and then Eve. Adam, in his firstness, was not arbitrary. Remember, God could have done this any way he wanted. He could have had us sprout from flowers in the ground. He could have had us just appear. He could have had both genders appear at the same time, simultaneously. He could have had us be asexual beings with no gender at all. God chose to make us male and female. And he chose to have Adam created first and thereby to take on the authority and the responsibility for the first family. We see that Adam names the animals. That's significant. We see that God gives him the command about the tree in the garden. Edom has, Eve hasn't been created yet. It's Adam's role to lead and then to teach Eve, look, here's the command. There's only one command. It should be easy, right? We've got one. We can follow this, right? It's no problem. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So we see that original gender roles and then in our fall into sin, we see a reversal of those roles. That's part of what Paul wants us to see. Verse 14, he highlights this. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now there, some people will say, look, what Paul is saying is women can't be trusted. Right? Women can't be trusted. Look, they couldn't even, there's a fruit. If they couldn't do that, they can't teach in the church. That, that doesn't make, they're inferior. We, we know that's not what Paul is saying. All we need to do is look around at the men, right? And just see there's no way that anyone could say that the Bible is saying that somehow men are intellectually or morally superior. Can I get an amen at least somewhere in this sermon? I think there should be an amen there, right? That would be a good point. Amen. Yes, thank you. Thank you, ladies. Okay, so that, that is not what is being said. And we know that more than just looking around. We know that because what's being highlighted here is, is not the fact just that, that Eve sinned, but the way in which she did it, right? She was there in the garden in front of the tree, she had heard the word of God through Adam, the command, and yet the serpent came and tempted her to doubt that word. He said, did God really say? And she said, well, you know, he, sort of, he did, but we're supposed to. And they dialogued back and forth. Really what the serpent was doing is tempting her to, to doubt God's love. He was really saying, look, God doesn't love you the way that he says he does. He's, he's, he's limiting your joy. He's limiting your knowledge and Eve believed the serpent. That was her first sin. She doubted the word of God, but notice in her sin, what did she do with her role? She stepped out of the role that God gave her and she took on the lead role, right? She took the fruit. By the way, Adam's sitting there also not fulfilling his role, not doing anything. And she eats of it and then she goes and gives it to Adam. She, she leads Adam into sin. Adam doesn't do anything. He doesn't do what he's been called to do in that position of authority and responsibility, the roles have been, have been switched. Now, that's not all we learn about gender roles in the creation account because when God comes to speak to Adam and Eve, you'll notice that he goes back to the original gender roles that he has assigned. Even though Eve is the one who sinned, when God comes back, who does he call out? Adam. He says, Adam, what's going on? Adam, what happened? In fact, what we see through the Bible especially in Romans 5, is that when it talks about humanity's fall into sin, it says that we sinned in Adam. Why? Because when God has anything to say about gender roles, he still sees those gender roles to be in full effect. 
that there is a leadership in the home and in the church. So Paul's reasoning here is very, very clear, right? His reasoning in terms of why he's giving these instructions about the, the church is because of a transcultural principle given at the time of creation, that there are certain gender roles that have been established and even when sin messed them up, they still continue to this day and that's the way that the church and the home should be run. Paul answers the big why question by pointing all the way back to the beginning of humanity and says, if you're to understand yourselves as men and women and the church, you need to understand, you understand this. So, question five. What does she will be saved through childbearing mean? As if there wasn't enough to understand in this passage, this last verse is also kind of baffling. Because what, what, is, what does it mean? Is it, some people say this is a, a veiled reference to the gospel. Some people say, look, what it's talking about here is that, yeah, because a woman gave birth to the Savior, that that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the gospel. But that doesn't really make sense. I mean, if Paul wanted to talk about the gospel, he would just say it, right? He says that a lot. It, it, to have this cryptic, weird kind of, it doesn't make sense. What makes more sense is that Paul is still talking about gender roles. And that when he uses the word childbearing, really, if you think about it, he has, he has this whole time been highlighting a unique calling of men, right, to, to lead and preach in the church. And now he is highlighting the corresponding uniqueness of women. If there's one thing that sets us apart as men and women, it is, it is childbirth. And so this term, it doesn't mean that all women will have children or need to have children to be saved. What it's saying is, look, look, ladies, this is the thing that sets you apart. That as women, you have been set apart. That you have a specific role to play. And he ties it into salvation because what he's saying is, all of us who are Christians need to work out our salvation in the way that we live. We see that in the Bible. We have been saved by the finished work of Christ, we are being saved as we live out our life and we will be saved when we make it to the end faithfully. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, ladies, you will be saved. You will experience the fullness of salvation when you embrace your calling as women. That very often includes childbirth, but that, that's not the only thing. In fact, he adds on some other things there that are part of your sanctifying process. He says, if you continue in faith, in love, in holiness, with self-control, that all of that is part of it. But just as men have unique calling in certain areas of life, women also have a unique calling. And the point here is that to the extent that you reject it, you will hinder your own spiritual growth. And to the extent that you embrace it and seek to honor God with it, you will mature and grow and experience all that it means to be saved. So here's a summary statement. Of, of the view of the text that I'm advocating, uh, you could say it this way. Men and women have been created differently to fulfill complementary roles within the church and home. We haven't talked about the home, but that would be Friday night if you want more teaching on that. Embracing this teaching brings freedom and joy. Rejecting it brings frustration and danger. I say danger because at any time that we go um, in a different direction from where God is leading, it, it does put us in a certain amount of danger, spiritually speaking. That we're going against what God says is best. So I feel like we should object. Okay? A few objections? Yes? Uh, 
I'm going to give you three. There are more, but I'm going to try to hit three main ones. First objection, doesn't this mean that women are not as valuable as men? Because it really seems like what this is saying is, look, there are some important roles for men in the church, and there are some less important roles for women. How does that not um, make one more important, one less important? Well, the way to understanding this is, um, is to be clear that from the Bible's point of view, a person's role does not determine their value. That there are a lot of different roles in the church that we are to take on, and not one of them is better than the other. Uh, there's an author, William Mounts, who, who says this really well, so I'm going to read the quote. He says, The equating of worth and role is a non-biblical, secular view of reality. Nowhere in Scripture are role and ultimate worth ever equated. In fact, we constantly find the opposite. The last will be first. The suffering servant himself is not worth less than those he served. The good news of God's kingdom is that it does not matter what function a person performs. What matters uh, is repentance from sins, entrance into the kingdom, and the living out of one's salvation as regenerated human beings of equal worth with all members of the same body, regardless of role. So there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, is basically what he's saying. That yes, we are called to different roles in the church, but God does not equate that with value, that one is more important than the other. Um, a corresponding question that people often have is they will say, okay, but what about Galatians 3.28? Because Galatians 3.28 speaks about uh, our newness, our new identity in Christ. And what it says is that, well, let me read it. It says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so many people will say, well, look, this is saying then that as the church, we now have no distinctions. So if there's no distinctions, then how can there be any roles? Well, two things. Firstly, it is saying that there are no distinctions. That we do have a new uh, superseding identity in Christ. That now the most important thing about us is not our social class or our race or our gender. We are in Christ. But that doesn't mean that there are no longer any roles in the church. If you just think about it, look at the way Paul organizes the church. Is, is he saying, I mean, he, he wrote that. Does he then go around the church and give no structure, no roles, no authority? Of course not. What does he do? He plants a church. He appoints elders. In fact, he speaks to the church as if they are a body with different roles. Uh, he talks to them, you know, you're, you're an ear, you're an eye, you're a foot, you're a hand. He's saying everyone has a different role to play. That's how the church is supposed to work. Yes, you are one in Christ, but that does not mean you have not still been appointed or assigned given roles to play. That's the way that any good organization, any good team works. Now, the next question you might wonder is, okay, but Matt, is it really possible to have different roles and yet still be equal? Right? You're saying the complementarian view sees that men and women are equal, but can, can that actually happen? And the answer is yes, it can. And our best example of it is God himself. See, in God's own Trinitarian nature, we have distinct persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are equal, equally glorious, equally powerful. They are not the same person, and yet they take on distinct roles. Right? In our salvation, the Father is the one who planned our salvation. The Son, Jesus, is the one who accomplished it. The Father was not crucified on the cross. Jesus is the one who suffered for us. He took on that role, not because he was less valuable, but because he saw that it needed to be done, and he rejoiced 
in the greater plan of God. And the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to our lives. Different roles, different responsibilities, but equality. If we're wondering, if we're struggling with this, we need only look to God himself for help in this. Okay, next objection. Isn't this a recipe for oppression? See, by this point in human culture, we know that when there's a discrepancy in power, it will tend to be abused. And there are probably some here who would say, I'm struggling with this because you're talking about a church with men in charge, and in my life that has not gone well. And we would have to affirm that in the church, sadly, it has not always gone well. But the way to think of this is to understand that the abuse of a thing does not negate its proper use. So simply because there has been poor leadership in the church does not mean that we should abandon the design for leadership that God has given us. Just because there are corrupt police officers does not mean that we get rid of the police force. Just because there are incompetent and corrupt political leaders doesn't mean we embrace anarchy. The solution to sinful abuses of power in the church isn't unbiblical authority. It's rather installing godly, qualified leaders that have proven themselves as servants. That's what we see when it comes to the qualification of elders. It's those men who have served their family and community and church sacrificially. It's those men who understand that Jesus is the example of the servant leader, one who literally gives his life for the sake of the church. That is the, that is the right understanding of, of power and authority when it comes to God's point of view. And it's one that, man, we need to embrace. We need to live this out so that we can honor God and so that we can really care for our church and for our families in the way that God has called us to. Okay, third objection. What if a woman is gifted to teach? And this isn't an if, right? There are women who are gifted at teaching. There are women in this church that have the gift of teaching. That, that are teaching. How are we to understand this then when there are women who are gifted to a certain thing and yet it seems like what the Bible is saying is that they're not able to do a certain thing? Well, biblically speaking, simply having a gift doesn't mean that it should be exercised everywhere and anywhere. God-given gifts should be used according to God's ways. We see this in other areas of teaching about gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's speaking to the church there, and he's saying to those who have the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, hey, look, it's great you have that gift, but you can't just use it anytime, anywhere. It's for the building up of the church. It's supposed to help people. So if you're talking over each other, if there's no one there to interpret, you don't use it. Right? You, have to, you have to wait for the right time so that it will actually be helpful. It's the same with all of our gifts. We need to take our cues from God himself in terms of how and when we should use them. Kathy Keller, in that little book that uh, we have out there for sale, uh, she recalls uh, one, uh, one of her classes in seminary. She went to Gordon Cromwell Seminary, and one of her professors was Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot is a famous missionary, a Bible teacher, and she recalls one day when Elizabeth Elliot stood up uh, in front of a class full of men and women, and she said to them, proclaimed to them, I, I have better qualifications to be a pastor than, than probably anyone in this room. She said, I, I actually have probably better qualifications to be a pastor than most men in the seminary. And then she went off to list her qualifications. She, she knows the Bible in multiple languages. She has experience expositing the Bible, teaching the Bible in multiple languages. 
She has suffered for the gospel, literally been on mission for years in the jungle. She's been purified and sanctified. She was a mature woman of faith. She went on and on about all the ways in which God has gifted her and sculpted her. But then she, she ended this way. She said, however, God has not called me as a woman to exercise those gifts in a pastoral role. I am called to use them, but why should they only be valuable if used in one particular role, the ordained ministry? See, Elizabeth Elliot is a godly woman who understood the text of scripture and saw that God had gifted her in many ways, but also had organized the church in a particular way. Kathy Keller says, look, this, this challenge of using our gifts in the way that God has called us to is, is actually a challenge for both men and women. Because there are men in the church who are called to lead and they don't much feel like it. And there are women in the church that want to step into that role and both are kind of bristling at this call of God. And Kathy Keller says, look, this, this is where Jesus comes in for both men and women. Because both of us can look to Christ himself in terms of an example of how to live out our calling as men and women in the church. She says, for men, we can look to Jesus as a servant leader who sacrifices himself for those under his care. And for women, she says, you can look to Jesus as the submissive servant who took on that role to secure our salvation. She says, the glory of gender roles then is that everyone gets to reveal an aspect of the life of Jesus and we get to grow closer to him as we do it. So ladies, if God has given you the gift to teach, then my hope is that you will find many opportunities here within Tri-City Church to use that gift. There are many opportunities. It is our desire to see women grow and flourish in all of their gifts and to use them in the way that God has commanded for the benefit of the church. That really is our heart. Okay, a final challenge. This also comes from Elizabeth Elliot. She says this in an article about true femininity. Elliot points to two women in the Bible. Um, there are two women who heard the word of God and yet responded in very, very different ways. The first is one we've met already, Eve. Right? Eve heard the word of God. She knew the word of God. And yet her response was to ignore it, right? to abandon it, to go her own way, and we, we see the fallout from that. But the other woman is Mary. Notice, both of them are at the beginning. One at the beginning of the Old Testament, one at the beginning of the New Testament. Mary also heard the word of God, and the calling of God on her life was actually much more difficult because she wasn't sitting in paradise. She wasn't experiencing the presence of God. And the calling that God placed on her life was that she would have a child by the Holy Spirit, and that meant certain humiliation, certain danger, certain hardships for her. And yet, what was her response? Look at Luke 1.38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Elliot asks, Ladies, which woman are you like? Which woman do you want to be like? Which of these women do you think genuinely experienced the blessing and presence of God? And I would add to you, men, which guy do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Adam who sat there and watched and did nothing, did not step into the role that God had given him? Or do you want to be like Joseph 
Joseph, who says so little in the Bible and yet does so much. Joseph, who stepped up and, and took on the humiliation, covered Mary by marrying her, even though he wasn't sure exactly what was going on and, and it looked bad. He stepped into that role so that he could care for her, so that he could care for Jesus himself. See, this really is the call for us in terms of gender roles, that we would trust that God's wisdom for us, his word to us is always good. It's always for our good. Even when it constrains us or pushes us or shapes us in ways that, that in our own nature feel somewhat unnatural, the more that we develop the mind of Christ, the more that we see the beauty of the roles that God has given us and the way that he shaped these gender roles within the church. So I want to read our summary statement one more time. It goes this way. Men and women have been created differently to fulfill complementary roles within the church and the home. Embracing this teaching brings freedom and joy. Rejecting it brings frustration and danger. My hope for us as a church is that we would not just, we wouldn't just see this teaching and say, well, I can't see any way around it. I guess we have to do this. It's not, that's not the right disposition to the word of God. My hope is that if we are struggling with this, that we will ask questions, we will in prayer, in conversation, in research, seek to understand it the best that we can. And when it comes down to it, we will trust the word. We'll trust God himself. And that our church and our families and our lives will be shaped in the way that God has said is best because remember, he has given his life for us. That's the extent of his love for us. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this teaching. I thank you for this, this passage, Lord, as difficult as it is for us. God, I, I thank you because it reveals more of who you are and more of who we are to be. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to uh, press into this issue with a real love for your word, a real grace for each other. And I do pray, Lord, that the men of this church would see their role as protector, as servant, as laying down our lives for the women around us. God, that you would help us to, uh, to see you, Jesus, as the servant leader. And I pray, Lord, for the ladies. I pray, God, that you would help them to, to see you, Jesus, the submissive servant. And Lord, that in this, we would be able to glorify you all the more and we'd be able to grow in godliness as individuals and as a church. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.